Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food, and this week I'm with the Queen of Wilding, and fabulously surnamed Isabella Tree. You know, climate change, biodiversity loss, how is one individual going to make a difference? I mean, it's usually an overwhelming question and we tend to ignore it. But then you come to a place like this, and thankfully now there are many more places in England kicking off, so there's other places to go to, where you suddenly feel kind of empowered. I met Isabella at the Nep Estate, her home, but also the extraordinary pioneering project to restore nature, which she captured so beautifully in Wilding. Chris Packham called it a poignant, practical and moving story of how to fix our broken land. Now, the Book of Wilding breaks that story down into encyclopedic form for everyone to refer to, however big or small their garden. After lunch of the longhorn beef introduced by the Burrells to bring this land back to life, I reminded her of the last time we met, back in 2019. So the last time we were together was in a treehouse right here on the Nepa State, <laughs> standing amongst the trees watching a red stag. And it was a real moment, actually. I, I remember this really well. Um, it was kind of the culmination of everything you'd done. This was a sort of a symbol of your rewilding process. Bring us up to speed. What's, what's happened at NEP uh, since then? Well, I guess things just get wilder and woollier. Um, we continue to have these extraordinary um, apparitions. I mean, uh, a species that find us out of nowhere. Uh, we had a fly that is new to, to Britain um, a couple of years ago, so it was about 20, 2019. Last year, we uh, found um, a breeding colony of large tortoiseshell butterflies, which were thought to have been extinct in the UK for 50 years. I mean, how do they find us? I mean, they're, they're clinging on somewhere. And you know, at least two of them get here and then they start breeding and before you know it, they're everywhere. But, but how do they find you? I mean, what are you creating that sends a signal to all these, ex- these species to come back? Because that's the point of it, isn't it? It's to come back. Yeah, I mean, apart from the free-roaming animals that, you know, you, you've seen, like the, the red, red stag, um, we haven't introduced um, anything, at least not until recent, very recently. Um, so we're just creating the really dynamic kind of mosaic of habitats that really, you know, would have been here in the past before we started simplifying everything, ploughing everywhere, um, and and essentially depriving all our species of habitat. So now we've got this this sort of kaleidoscope of very dynamic shifting um, edge effects, these margins everywhere, which is rocket fuel for wildlife. So. How they find us, I have absolutely no idea. I think even ecologists aren't sure. Obviously, you know, some butterflies, some um, dung beetles can travel tens, if not hundreds of miles in search of habitat. There'll be a massive attrition rate, you know, so one out of a thousand will ever find good habitat. But once they do, they can proliferate very quickly. So that's what we're seeing here. We've got a dung beetle the violet violet door beetle, this beautiful, huge dung beetle, which hasn't been seen in Sussex for 50 years. And it's a keystone species because it actually pulls the dung underground. So you've got the nutrients from our organic dung now being pulled into the soil to restore it. 
We've now got tens of thousands of violet door beetles. Amazing. And that is really, really important to soil health. Give us a little overview of why soil health is so important. You know, I mean, the soil here is particularly challenging, but actually soil health across the whole country and across the whole world actually is really in crisis. You know, we were talking a little bit earlier about compassion and world farming and Philip Limbury's 60 harvests left. Well, actually, it was the UN that said it was 60 harvests left back in 2014. You know, it's a long time ago. Actively repurposing the land to, to put the nutrients back mm. through all the rewilding that you've done or the mm. wilding as you'd mm. rightly call it because it's not about rewilding it's it, and it's an ongoing process um why is that so important for anybody who doesn't understand that process just just why is it so important to well, bring the soil I mean, health back you know the soil you know it's that tiny thin veneer that covers most of the planet that isn't blue And that is where all life begins. I mean, we owe everything to the soil. It's everything from bacteria to um, the organisms that um, help uh, uh, provide nutrients for the plants. So it's the mycorrhizal fungi underground that is actually getting getting the, the... the DNA of life into things that grow on top of the soil. And to me, it's absolutely mystifying that for, you know, the last 50 years or maybe less, maybe 20 or 30 years, because I think farmers during the war knew the importance of the soil. But ever since kind of industrial farming began, say, in the 50s, 60s, we just have lost touch with the soil. Um, Darwin knew that earthworms were keystone species, um, Cleopatra would imprison people if they hurt earthworms in in the the river basins of Egypt. You know, we've forgotten how important the the microbiology is in the soil, and what we've seen here at NEP um, is just astonishing. You know, people told us at the beginning, you know, we had virtually no life left in the soil. The only thing that was keeping crops growing was artificial fertilizer, um, and they said, well, you know. The anisic worms, those are the vertical burrowing worms, the really long ones, the lobworms that you know people, um, fishermen use for for, for catching fish. Um, they won't. They colonise a field on average about a metre a year, and we thought, oh my god, you know, we're not going to see earthworms in the middle of our fields before we die. Mm. But within a few years, we were seeing those vertical worms. We were seeing the worm casts in the middle of the fields. And nature will come back much faster than you think um, if you just let it. We now have 19 species of earthworm. But I think, you know, that's the biodiversity and that's where it all springs from. Suddenly the, the soil is functioning so it can hold on to moisture much better. Um, it's, it's holding back floods. It's actually now got um, this sort of property whereby um, polluted water that flows onto our land from surrounding farmland or from the roads is actually being purified by going through this kind of um, this sieve, this 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 purification network that the soil and the plants that grow from it are providing. But this year we had the most exciting for us. This is this is the big win of this year, I think. Um, you know, everyone I think is now agreed. Um, you know, because. NEP and and other rewilding projects like us have been really rigorous about science that rewilding brings back wildlife. We know that it's good for biodiversity. But up until now, people have been saying, well, it's a one-trick pony. Okay, it's great for wildlife, but can it store carbon? And this year, we had a government-funded project um, uh, using an independent soil company called AgriCarbon 
that tested our soils. They put, um, you know, a thousand core samples into the soils in the rewilding project. So it was a big data set. And they've discovered that w- that net rewilded soils are sequestering as much carbon as a 25-year-old plantation. Wow. Now, for that, that is huge because it's showing that not only are we storing carbon, and remember, that's just the soil, so everything mm-hmm. above it, all the trees, the natural regenerating oaks, the, the vegetation, the thorny scrub, the wetlands, will all be sequestering carbon too. But there is no need now to go out and chase that carbon dollar by going out and planting, um, you know, uh, saplings grown in commercial nurseries in polypropylene tubes tied to canalised wooden stakes. You know, we don't need to do that. Rewilding can do biodiversity and carbon at the same time. And is that the point? I mean, the book of wilding is massive. I mean, I read all the books that appear on Cooking the Books from beginning to end, but I haven't read yours <laughs> because surprised. it is hundreds and hundreds. <laughs> of but it's it well, but it's not. That, that's not the point, is it? It is a handbook, isn't it? Yeah. And I've looked into. You know, we've got lots of issues that I want to look into. I want to look into. You know, what to do with our pond. I want to, yeah. to look into better planting methods. So it is a handbook, but. You know, NEP is a sort of a utopia. What was the idea of the Book of Wilding? Who were you trying to tell about this extraordinary experience that you've had, from which you have so much information that you could pass on? Where's the role of the book in making Britain a better place? Well, I think what we hadn't ever imagined at the start of this project was how um, how how kind of successful it was going to be. We didn't realise that this was actually going to become a really important story of hope, I suppose. Um, not only could wildlife come back, but how quickly. So within 20 years, you know, you're now seeing some of the rarest species in Britain right here. And some of them, it's the last place where numbers are actually rising, like turtle doves and, and nightingales. So we've gone from being a completely defunct buggered up piece of land to being something that is you know one of the most significant biodiversity hotspots in Britain within 20 years so I think for people coming here you know like like us I guess I mean we used to feel you know eco-anxiety I guess we wouldn't have called it that 20 years ago but you know climate change biodiversity loss how is one individual going to make a difference I mean it's usually an overwhelming question and we tend to ignore it Mm. But then you come to a place like this, and thankfully now there are many more places in England kicking off, so there's other places to go to, where you suddenly feel kind of empowered because you know that things can happen. You can actually see it and feel it. And that's very galvanising. So suddenly we're, we're getting reams of emails, letters, postcards, um, songs, even sonnets and paintings, you name it, from people who've been inspired by what they've seen. And they've said, we don't have thousands of acres, we don't even have hundreds, but I have an orchard, I look after a local churchyard, I I mow the local cemetery, Um, I've got an allotment, a back garden, a window box. Mm. Can I rewild? And we we think, absolutely you can. Well, we'll go into that, and that's one of your food moments, actually, sort of using that sort of growing communities idea of, you know, churchyards and little spaces and, and gardens. But your first food moment you want to talk about you know can we feed the country through rewilding projects i think it's really important to emphasize that the argument that 
We don't need more land for farming. We are already overproducing food. Um, we waste 30 to 40 percent of it, and we have to address that food waste issue. Um, but we can also produce as much food from the land as before under chemical farming mm-hmm. um, with no inputs. And that has to be good eventually for the farmer because that's going to make them more profit. Yeah. But where rewilding, I think, fits is uh, it shouldn't be seen, as some people say, as, as farming's greatest enemy. It actually works fantastically well with farming. So rewilding projects like ours are providing the dung beetles, which get killed off every year because even on organic farms, the animals get taken into um, buildings to overwinter. And that essentially kills off your your dung beetles because they are all year round um, insects. They're, they're feeding all year round. So rewilding projects can replenish those populations of beetles all the time. So as soon as, you know, the cattle, organic cattle come out on farms around us, our beetles will be colonising those areas instantly. We're producing the pollinating insects, we're producing the the natural pest control that that farming needs. But we're also cleaning the water, we're cleaning the air, we're, you know, reducing the risk of floods onto farmland, Uh, we're helping that farmland in times of drought, we're helping restore the soils for farmland. But we're also providing physical buffers against extreme weather events, which we're going to see more and more of. So storms and wind blow. So really, rewilding is the kind of life support system that is going to actually cradle our food production systems in the future. Your second food moment is about your wild range meat. It's a really important part of the rewilding project. Tell us why, first of all, we should be interested in free range meat, wild range meat, um, and the problem for us of industrialised meat production. Um, we know really the problems with industrialised meat. Um, it's it's unconscionable, I think, on, on every level. Uh, we're sacrificing huge areas of land to grow grain to feed animals, which is not what they are meant to eat in the first place. So it makes the animals very unhealthy. It means the vet bills go up. Um, it means that the meat that they, the fats that they put down are actually positively bad for our health. Um, and it's hugely high um, carbon um, cost um, as well as financial cost. So it doesn't work on any level and we have to move on from that. There was a very interesting study um, done the other day that showed that if everybody in Western Europe um, dropped their meat consumption by 15%, so that's not a lot, what's that, it's a day and a half a week not eating meat, um, that would negate any need to import grain from both Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. That's food security. Yeah. Um, so there's that big issue too. So we've got to stop doing industrialised meat and dairy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that does mean a change in our diets. We've got to learn to eat less meat again. We haven't eaten this amount of meat ever before in the history of human beings. Yeah. You know, we... Um, even 50 years ago, our, our grandparents would have been eating far, far less meat. We just have to go to that, back to that level. Yeah, less but better. Less but better. And when you're eating meat, to make sure that it comes from somewhere where the animals are actually contributing to um, soil health, which means carbon sequestration, so it's helping yeah. climate change, and it will be helping biodiversity. So conservation-grade meat, um, meat from regenerative agriculture, and meat from rewilding projects. 
So we feel that our meat is perhaps the the gold standard. It's the the top of the pinnacle of that. We're not producing very much of it, so we you know we we must eat it sparingly. Um, but it is um, our animals are able to browse, which they don't often get that um, um, chance in in even organic systems. So really important for animals to be able to eat woody. Um, species as well as graze on on grass and we think cows eat grass they they don't actually M- most of the, much of the time they're eating much bigger plants and and woody species we know that studies show that if cows eat tannins so they're they're eating the bark and the leaves and twigs of trees that actually dramatically reduces methane production but so do wildflowers mm. you know the fumaric acid in 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 bird's foot trefoil and shepherd's purse and, and other wildflowers is also a methane suppressant so we're only measuring the methane off cows in industrialized systems because it's obviously very easy to stick a bag on a on a cow's face in a yeah. in a huge um, you know, um, industrialized complex than it is to go and catch one out, out in the rewilding project and measure its methane. But that's an important, we ought to be doing that. Um, You've got your longhorn here. We've yeah. just had a beautiful uh, beef for lunch. How important is the new wilding kitchen, which has only been open three weeks, to telling that story? I think it was one of the driving reasons behind opening the Wilding Kitchen, uh, which is which is really our son Ned's baby. Um, he's passionate about telling this story. I think he's he's obviously grown up on on rewilded meat, and and he knows the difference when he comes across it elsewhere. Um, I think you know we 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 have more in common, I think, with 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 vegans than we do with you know conventional meat eaters, um, and we want to be able to tell that story um, that. You know these animals are actually contributing to um, to the restoration of ecosystems. They're they're a keystone species, and we really need to respect that. So we have our own butchery on site here too. So we know that our butchers understand where our animals have come from. They really care about butchering them beautifully, using every single edible part of that animal. Um, we even use the hides to make chairs. You know, we were sitting on yes. in the in the restaurant. We were sitting on chairs made from our longhorn cows. Um, and what's lovely about those is, as Charlie's uh, said, you know, that they will change over time. They'll become softer. The leather yeah. will become softer. They'll take on a different sheen. But also, we didn't want to make that leather perfect. Mm. You know, a lot of leather is really is kind of stripped back to a much thinner product, and our leather is naturally quite thick because these animals are oh, essentially oh. wild. But you can also see the sort of the nicks and the the small scars where they've had a life there's a life story in the chair that you're sitting in um but i think also we 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 want to um be able to show we'll be doing kind of pasture to plate safaris and i think that really is such a good way of connecting people with food again and we've even had vegans and vegetarians coming on these safaris so that they can see the animals in the wild. They can see them living in natural herds where the, the, the calves are with their mothers for, you know, until they're weaned. Um, or they're still in the herd, but, you know, they have this very strong bond with them. Naturally um, weaned. Naturally weaned, exactly. And so telling that story of um, ecosystem regeneration, the meat being positively good for you, how the animals actually self-medicate. You can see the cows when they've just given birth. The first thing they do is go off for some a, a, a patch of nettles to replenish their iron. They're able to do what they would be doing in yeah. the wild, and that's incredibly important to us. So 
that's the story we hope that you know the wilding kitchen will be telling yeah also we just bumped into the young wilder project and then tomorrow a, a lot of young people are going to be coming possibly to talk about uh, veganism but possibly to talk about eco anxiety to to really sort of share how they're feeling about the state of the planet part of the book is about telling people how to actually take some of the ideas of rewilding into their own spaces their gardens as we said before their churchyards their cemeteries their their world will they be talking about that tomorrow will people be leaving here tomorrow with some really active ideas about how they can rewild themselves Absolutely. And I think, you know, these, these, you know, our young people's workshops are, you know, they, they rewild us as well. You know, we learn from them. It's, it's amazing that how just getting particularly young people out into a rewilding project encourages thinking outside the box and the kind of ideas that come springing out of, of, of a day like, like you know, the, the conference tomorrow will be absolutely incredible. They have, you know, huge reams and blackboards where they're scribbling ideas all over and it's, it just makes your heart leap to see it because it, you can see how this triggers um, just, you know, hope, I guess, is the first thing. Um, but, you know, um, inspiration. So, yeah, I mean, that... that you know, young people are, are are really you know one of the things we really want to kind of invest our time in and we we've just um this well last year actually during lockdown we've we've gone into a um partnership with operation Wallacea, um which um uh, is a kind of like a a sort of gap year i suppose for for students um from sixth form and from first and second year of university and so they can come here for a week, two weeks during a, a two or three month period during the summer to learn field craft, to actually get out there, to do studies, to learn how to monitor and survey um, wildlife. And that's been proving in- incredibly exciting. And, you know, you get young people who've seen cowspiracy and have a very fixed idea yeah. of, of what a cow is and how bad it is for the planet. And then they come away understanding the complexity of it all. And with any luck, they're going back to their their schools, their universities and rewilding their teachers and professors. Well, and telling their parents. And and your third food moment is about rewilding your garden. This is something that we can all do and that those young people can go home and actually get their parents to, to, to do something different. Tell us about what you hope to achieve from that chapter on rewilding your garden. Well, I think if we're if we're primarily talking about food here, you know, well, even if we're talking about you know general gardens, the first thing is to go pesticide free. Um, but I think the way we can be growing vegetables and um, and fruit, even in our gardens, is is pretty much how we should be doing regenerative agriculture too. We've just been for a little walk around our market garden, um, which is you know providing the the fruit and salad and vegetables for the wilding kitchen. Um, so it's thinking about um, trying not to disturb the soil. So you're not disturbing all that um, wonderful soil biota. You're not disturbing and cutting up your earthworms. You're letting that soil actually really mature and function properly. Um, companion planting so that you're, you're planting um, your, your, your beans and your squash and your maize together like Native Americans do. Um, you're using um, your basil amongst your tomato plants to, you know, attract the the white fly. You're doing you're doing that sort of nature friendly approach, um, 
and thinking not just of planting um, your flowers for pollinating insects, but also thinking of the plants for natural predator control. You know, thinking about your, you know, what are your your wasps and your hornets, um, you know, going to want. You know, the 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 sort of bogeymen of the of the insect world who actually are allies in disguise. Yeah. You know, they really are um, helping to keep the balance of of creatures in your garden. So. I think it's it's about taking the lessons from the wider landscape and thinking in terms of, you know, apex predator trophic cascades. Yeah. You know how how the predators can actually af- um, affect the the food chain, even at a tiny level. You may not have wolves in your garden, but you'll have wolf spiders. You know, so so thinking about all the array of insects that you can attract. Yeah, and even if you don't have uh, a garden yourself and you're living in the city, your fourth food moment is about urban rewilding, all those little areas, but also green roofs. Tell us about some of those ideas. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, the, the, the battle for climate change and biodiversity loss is going to be won or lost in cities because that's where all of us live. So we have to be thinking about greening our cities. And if you think of a building in a city, you know, that, that footprint that it's taken off the soil, you know, that soil is lost forever that's underneath the skyscraper. Um, but you have now got a 3D surface on which to cover in wonderful green stuff. So you can grow, you know, ivy, scramblers, um, vertical gardens all the way up buildings. There's amazing architects in, in Milan, um, Bueri, um, uh, I think he's called Stefano Bueri architects that have, are growing like huge balconies on these skyscrapers full of trees and, and you could grow, you know, vegetables and fruit on these balconies. And then you've got the rooftop. So why aren't we having roof gardens where we're actually growing growing fruit and vegetables up there? Um, like they did in Cuba during the oil crisis. Absolutely, absolutely. And then there's wonderful, you know, the um, incredible edible projects where, you know, towns and villages are actually, you know, partly doing guerrilla gardening, but also, you know, doing it in, in conjunction with councils. Um, green space and actually growing vegetables that... that anyone passing by can pick and eat. I mean, how amazing is that just to be able to browse around your, 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 your urban area as a kind of, you know, a keystone species like a cow or a pony would. It's just amazing. It is amazing. Um, it, it is very much about taking things into your own hands, though. And, you know, the fight for the climate is the, the, the constant question is individual versus, you know, global agreement. Really, 20 years on, you've done an amazing, amazing thing here at NEP and you've written the books and you've spread that message and you bring people here. And we've seen hundreds of people here today just soaking it all up, taking it out into the world like little pollinators themselves, (laughs) which is fabulous. But really, what impact has it had on the government? You do speak to people at top level now. You're always invited to talk on television and radio shows. What's the lasting impact on a on a global level of the work that you've done here my god i mean if you'd asked me this question a couple of years ago i'd have been very buoyant but we've just seen rishi sunak you know pushing back against almost every every win we've had for nature over the last couple of years so it's very very depressing but i guess we shouldn't expect any more of governments you know as soon as there's an election on the horizon the um, nature um, gets pushed back as if it's um, of no interest at all. But nature is of interest now. It is. It should be the one consuming interest because our, you know, our economy, our livelihoods, our prosperity, our health, 
um, depend on it. I mean, the survival of our grandchildren depends on it. So we have to put nature at the forefront. Um, so, yes, we do talk to politicians, but we, you know, we are pretty sanguine about that. I think, though, on a more optimistic, optimistic note, what we're finding is that the, the general public response is changing so fast and there is so much more um, connection with nature than there ever was before. Um, so much awareness of the, the life we're missing in the countryside, the, the filth and pollution of our rivers, um, the, 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 the danger of the air that we breathe. And that is, I think, of a real concern to people and politicians are not picking up on it. So... You know, one of the, the most exciting things we're doing right now is is, is um, creating a huge wildlife corridor. Uh, uh, it's about a, 100 miles in length, three-pronged attack to reach the sea, um, the Help the Kelp project off the Sussex coast. And that is involving large landowners, farmers, um, people owning their own gardens. And that's what's really thrilling is that across the board, you know, whole communities and individuals are joining this movement. Um, in the first week that the Wheel to Waves um, website um, went live in May earlier this year, we had over 100 individual gardeners joining this movement. And that's when you feel as an individual that you can make a difference. You're part of a community that gets it. And that is really the thrilling thing. And that's what's going to change the world because we need a revolution at grassroots level. We cannot leave it to politicians anymore. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to hear more from NEP, head over to my Substack to hear my 2019 interview with Isabella at NEP, where we are joined by that majestic red stag. Click on the link to Substack in the show notes. And I'll see you next week.